This New America NYC and Future Tense event was recorded on October 13th, 2015, and is titled Nonsense, The Power of Not Knowing, and features Jamie Holmes, Future Tense Fellow and author of Nonsense, and Maria Konnikova, contributing writer at The New Yorker and author of The Confidence Game. like to begin my conversations at the beginning. Isn't that smart? (laughs) Um, And so I was wondering if we could start off just by chatting a little bit about why you decided to write about nonsense. Yeah. Uh, I was researching um, the psychologist Roy Baumeister's work on willpower, uh, and his research shows that mental conflicts can be depleting. So that just kind of got me interested in how the mind deals with mental conflicts more generally. Um, And I ran into the research of um, Arya Kruglansky. He's a social psychologist at the University of Maryland. He does wonderful work. And in particular, this book called The Psychology of Closed-Mindedness. And in that book, he lays out really the history of all the theories that have dealt with open and closed-mindedness. And I was just very excited to find this, this research, which has been covered, but I felt like there was more there uh, to look into. So can you tell me a little bit, by the way, this, it's a totally fascinating exploration. I I really enjoyed it. Um, So tell me a little bit about what exactly you mean by closed-mindedness and how that applies to basically, I'm guessing, absolutely everyone in the audience. So the best way to probably get into the topic is to describe what the need for closure is. So this is Arya Kruglansky's signature concept. And the need for closure describes our need for definite answers over confusion and ambiguity. He's been working on this research since the mid-1980s. He published the need for closure scale in the early, uh, in 1993. And I can just give you some examples of the questions that are on that scale. I I know them. (laughs) I'm going to be following along, and if if he messes up. I appreciate that. I might might need it. Um, So, for example, um, after I've made a decision, I feel relieved. And you would have to rate this on a scale from one to six. Strongly uh, disagree is one. Uh, Strongly agree is six. Uh, I dislike uh, going into situations that are uncertain. Um, I dislike uh, questions which could have more than one answer. I feel that an orderly life uh, suits my temperament. Mm -hmm. Um, So he began, this began as a study of individual differences. And what I find particularly interesting about his construct, as opposed to competing conceptualizations, is that uh, he studied how situational differences affect our need for closure. So how small situational stressors make us more closed-minded or um, you know, we, we can also have um, methods to lower our need for closure, make us more open-minded. So, for example, uh, if you're rushed, your, your distaste for ambiguity goes up. If you've had some liquor, uh, your distaste <laughs> for ambiguity goes up. If you're stressed, if you're bored, um, if you have to act on something rather than merely observe it, your need for closure goes up. So what he's really describing is a baseline level of open-mindedness that we all have that kind of modulates over the days and weeks. And so that, that to me was, was what struck, uh, stuck out to me in his conceptualization. Yeah, what I found really fascinating was, you know, over and over you talk about, you know, historical events that really 
left people closed-minded in their wake, you know, from the Yom Kippur War to 9-11 to um, San Francisco earthquake. Um, and it seems so strange that at the moment that we should be most open-minded, we become most closed-minded. Um, I'd love for you to explore that a little bit, and perhaps you could also tell us what we might be able to do to try to avoid that. Yeah. I think one of the most... So threat raises our need for closure, in particular. And Kruglansky has done a study where simply reminding people of 9-11 raised their need for closure. Um, so, um, on the other hand, you know, I think safety, if you look at the, the places where we really like ambiguity, where we really enjoy ambiguity, they're all relatively safe. Mm -hmm. So we have our crossword puzzle, we have mystery novels, we have uh, the uncertainty of sports, um, those are all, I think of them as safe simulations. There's museums, mm -hmm. kind of safe simulations that are piggybacking on how emotional uh, the mind state of uncertainty is. And I agree with you, I think that it's ironic that our response to threat is to be more closed-minded. We also like decisive leaders more. Mm -hmm. So there are group experiments that show that uh, if you're in a group of people and you raise their need for closure, let's say, via time pressure, they favor more autocratic leaders. And if someone in that group speaks out and dissents from the group opinion, they're more quickly marginalized. So to your point, I think what you would hope for in a time of threat, especially if things are changing very quickly, um, if it's an uncertain situation, you're getting mixed signals, uh, for a leader to be flexible. And yet what we want is uh, almost the opposite of that, a kind of closed-minded decisiveness. So it's almost social pressure um, that compounds some of this problem. To conform, right? Is there any way, I mean, it, it seems like to get at the heart of that problem, we'd need to go into political discussions rather than, you know, individual psychology. Yeah, well, it would argue that a leader should be very decisive, at least publicly, mm -hmm. and then they can be kind of more nuanced in private. Obama has taken some flack, obviously, for wavering in public. Um, and, of course, the opposite was true with, uh, with George Bush. His decisiveness was rewarded politically, and you could argue that uh, it didn't work out too well geopolitically. Right, right. So basically going back to the original definition of being political, right. saying one thing in public, <laughs> thinking another thing in private. Right. Um, um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning situations where we actually kind of like ambiguity. That was one of my favorite parts of the book because it was just so much fun. Um, I loved some of the examples you found of ambiguous sentences and ambiguous sentiments that actually lead to humor. Um, one of my favorites that you point out was, so these are errors of translation. Um, one was in a hotel lobby in Bucharest, and it said, the lift is being fixed for the next day. During that time, we regret that you will be unbearable. <laughs> um, <laughs> in Norway, in a cocktail lounge, ladies are requested not to have children in the bar. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm actually flying out to London tomorrow, so this one struck very close to home. An airline ticket office in Copenhagen. We take your bags and send them in all directions. <laughs> Um, and uh, I could read these for hours, but let, let's, let's end it with this French one, which I think ha has something quite cultural about it. Please leave your values at the front desk. <laughs> um, so, so I think that, 
you know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating that a lot of this uncertainty and ambiguity is the basis of tremendous humor and pleasure in one sense, and yet when it actually matters becomes a source of, of great discomfort. Yeah, I, I think the way I came to think about it eventually, it's closest to, and you know these psychologists because you've written about them, um, Tim Wilson, who's a psychologist at the University of Virginia, and Dan Gilbert at Harvard, and they describe uncertainty as an emotional amplifier. And I really, I put their studies in the, I don't really talk about their studies much, but they have some great studies, and I'll just review one of them because it's fun. Um, they brought people into the lab and they showed them uh, two different film clips, five-minute clips. One was an enjoyable film clip, I think it was The Natural or Chariots of Fire. And then the unpleasant film clip was um, a film called Dark Days about homelessness in New York. Then they made uh, some people feel uncertain, some people feel certain. And they did this by having them repeat phrases connoting uncertainty and uncertainty. So you would watch the film and you would say, I'm really confused right now, I don't know what's going on. They would have you say this. Or I know exactly what's going on. And it turned out the people who were primed to feel uncertain had more extreme ratings, both for the positive film and for the negative film, than people who felt certain. And they've done this experiment for physical attraction. So they had women, they showed women pictures of uh, men on Facebook, and they said this man likes you a lot, or this man likes you a moderate amount or a lot. And that was more pleasant to not be sure whether the man liked them a little or a lot than to be sure. They've done this with gifts. So uh, you're gonna get two gifts for sure, or you're gonna get one gift or two gifts. Mm -hmm. Again, more enjoyable to not know one or two than to know two for sure. And people don't predict uh, these effects. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And why do you think that is? What's kind of the deeper explanation for that? For why people, I think, yeah. I think we think certainty is great. You know, why two, you wouldn't predict two gifts is better. You know, he really likes me, it's better. Right, but why do we actually provide, do we, do we like to imagine that the future might be even better than, than we know? Why, why is it that we end up liking the uncertainty more? I think it's, to, it's absolutely fascinating. I don't know the answer to yeah, that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm speculating. I think it's piggybacking on this, and I spend a whole chapter on it um, because I think it's so important how aggressively the mind resolves mm -hmm. and how kind of powerful this resolution machine is mm -hmm. uh, that's built in. And so I think a lot of things that are fun are, are building on that and it's just like, I need to know, I need to know, and that's, it's kind of an emotional boost to whatever we're feeling. So leaving aside these wonderful puzzles, I can't resist, I'm doing one more. <laughs> Athens Hotel. Visitors are expected to complain at the office between the hours of 9 and 11 a.m. daily. <laughs> um, so, so leaving aside these puzzles, and there are also brain teasers that you talk through that really kind of leave us either laughing or feeling a sense of satisfaction, why is it that we're so afraid of ambiguity generally? I think, you know, it's, at some point you have to talk about the content of what's ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Um, rather than just talking about ambiguity in, in general, because you know there's some there's some circumstances which are in the middle, maybe a multicultural experience, it could be bad or good, but the ambiguity of a medical diagnosis or the ambiguity of whether or not you're going to get fired, it just has much more dire consequences, right. you know, versus I'm going to the museum, it's fine, I'm having a good time, I don't have to act, uh, it's unthreatening. So at some point, the consequences come into play. 
So that's really interesting that you mentioned that because you write here about medical ambiguity and how sometimes that need for certainty, actually, the consequences end up being much worse. There's a story of the woman that you mentioned who was misdiagnosed with a fatal cancer um, and almost had to undergo chemotherapy and was, I think, extremely lucky that she that was. didn't actually happen. Yeah. Um, so it, I'd love to explore that tension a little bit, how you know the ambiguity scares us and yet over-certainty might actually be much more dangerous. There's a great study um, by Sunita Sa, she's at Cornell, and in the medical context in which she showed uh, what they did was they took 700 men, so a large sample size, and they said, we're going to give you information about the risks and benefits of a prostate biopsy. This was all hypothetical. Um, then, they, then they took three other groups and they said, in addition to just information on the risks and benefits, we're going to give you a hypothetical PSA, prostate-specific antigen, screening result. So this is a test which will inform the decision of whether or not to have a biopsy. Now imagine that this, on this hypothetical test you have, uh, you know, for three different groups, uh, positive, negative, or uncertain, right? And the uncertain result, it was very clear, it said, this result gives you no information about whether or not you have cancer. And what they did is they compared that group, the inconclusive result, to the group that just got the risks and benefits. And it was something like 40% um, chose to go ahead with, uh, again, hypothetically, chose to go ahead with, uh, with the prostate biopsy when they had the uh, inconclusive result versus 25% when you just had the risks and benefit. So it's a 15% jump for people who had a result that told them nothing. Uh, and I think that's a, it's a, you know, it's just this, I don't know, and then it's propelling you. So her, her idea is called investigation momentum. Mm -hmm. You start on a course of action, you do a medical test. Sometimes those medical tests have ambiguous results and it leads to this kind of cascade of tests. And some of which are, you know, every test has a risk. There's exposure, exposure to radiation, there's complications, there's the mental anxiety of it, so. And we really, um, and you write about this as well, we really live in a time where I think people end up over-testing a lot and finding a lot of false positives, and it's a huge debate right now. Yeah, and there, are, of course, there are other causes for that. You know, there's, there's the, the, the cost issue, you know, there's, the, there's defensive medicine, there's the fact that people are making money on this, so. But that's, this is one part of it. Do you think that it also comes, this lack of comfort with uncertainty and this desire for, you know, clean-cut diagnosis, is that also something that might lead to a risk of overconfidence? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I know you've written about overconfidence. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so confidence is really the opposite of being uncertain. Mm -hmm. um, there's a great study that was done, not on the need for closure, but using a related construct, uh, intolerance of ambiguity. And they looked at CEOs in a volatile economic market. Mm -hmm. And um, it was in Sweden, I think. And they measured the CEO's tolerance for ambiguity, and they correlated that with the financial output of the firm. And they showed that the higher the CEO's tolerance for ambiguity, the higher the profit. They also looked at confidence. It had no effect on profits, uh -huh. but it did lead uh, to higher consumer satisfaction. So we're back to George Bush again. Right, right. <laughs> That's fascinating. So once again, it seems like people who are less certain and who are more willing to embrace that might actually end up 
doing better. I mean, even, you know, psychologists talk about these two kinds of learning, simple learning mm -hmm. and conceptual learning. And simple learning, I don't have to really enrich the way I see the world. It's just, how do I get to the store? And then conceptual learning, I'm building on my mental models of the world. And for that, you really have to experience uncertainty. You know, Kurt Lewin, who's called the father of social psychology, says, stable states resist change. So for behaviors to change, they have to first become unstable. Uh, and that's true for conceptual learning. So I like, you know, uncertainty means you're learning something. Sure. Sure. So do you find that personally you've become more tolerant of uncertainty? I've tried to become a little better. <laughs> I'm not great. I rank in the middle of the need for closure scale. So, really? So there are a lot of people who are better at dealing with it than I. Do we know, is there data on um, stability over time? So are you going to rank, you know, 10 years from now, are you going to still be in the middle? Over the lifespan? No, I can ask Relancy about that. <laughs> I, I, hadn't, I hadn't occurred to me. There actually, actually, there is a researcher in Australia uh, who is doing a related concept, um, and this is from the decision theory literature. Uh -huh. So decision theorists have this distinction between risk, where you know the odds, like flipping a coin. I'm sorry, um, yeah, you know the odds, but you don't know the outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's like flipping a coin. And ambiguity, as they define it, you don't know the odds. Mm -hmm. So she has a very interesting thesis, uh, which is that the reason why adolescents look uh, risk tolerant by risk in lay terms, we just mean dangerous, is actually because they're ambiguity tolerant, and she's tested this. Huh. So her theory is the reason why teens you know, behave in such a dangerous way is not because they like risk. And in fact, they're just as risk intolerant as people in their 60s and 70s. What they are is ambiguity tolerant. And that makes sense from a developmental perspective because they're programmed to explore the unknown. And so she's found that these two, uh, risk and ambiguity as they define it, have completely different developmental pathways. That's fascinating. And are there certain areas or professions or types of people who maintain that ambiguity tolerance? Well, uh, one of the people that I profile in the book, uh, Gary Nesner, who was an um, FBI negotiator. He was at Waco and he was also the head of the negotiations team for, I think, 23 years. So he took the test and he scored five points higher than the lowest possible score. So yeah, there are people, and, and one of the things that Kruglansky has suggested is that there are certain jobs where you have to deal with ambiguity under pressure. And pressure is going to raise everybody's need for closure. There should be people involved in those decisions who have a naturally low need for closure. Uh -huh. uh, Gail Geller, who is a Johns Hopkins professor, has made a similar suggestion in the medical context. Uh, she actually suggested they put uh, questions measuring your tolerance of ambiguity on the MCAT. <laughs> um, I think there are a lot of professions in counterintelligence, um, you know, like uh, counter-narcotics, arms strike, things where uh, counterterrorism, where you have little bits and pieces of information, things are very fluid, you yeah. have misinformation, and you're under a lot of pressure. Yeah. So. Well, um, speaking of counterintelligence, I mean, the, the guy you open your book with, um, Mich Michelle Thomas, yeah, right? Right. Um, I'd love, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about him. I mean, this guy was totally fascinating, going from Nazi, counter-Nazi spy, right, to revolutionary language teacher. He is a f fantastic character. Um, and he really, so Michelle Thomas was, uh, maybe you all have heard of him. He has language uh, institutes in- I'd never heard of him. In London, I think still in New York. Well, he passed away in 2004 or 2005. 2005. 2005. <laughs> Okay, um, and he won the I Silver Star in 2004. <laughs> um, 
And he worked as an interrogator. He worked for the Allies uh, right after World War II. And he began to pick up really lessons about human psychology in interrogations and his work in, in counterespionage. And one of the things he learned was that if you want to make people close-minded, you stress them out. <laughs> so um, there's a scene where he's, you know, he really has these uh, former SS men. This is after the war, and they're underground. And he, he has them thinking that he's with them, and he's part of their group, and he doesn't want them to change their mind. So he puts them under a lot of stress. He has them run through roadblocks. He has them march through icy puddles. He has them wait out in the rain, in the cold. And um, so I contrast that scene with this scene from a BBC documentary from 1998, where he's really doing the opposite mm -hmm. with students and really lowering their need for closure, making them completely comfortable. So he says, uh, we're not going to have the normal classroom furniture. I'm not going to have this authoritative relationship with you. Let's move all the furniture out. Let's put in these wicker screens and armchairs. In fact, you don't need desks. You don't need pens and paper. And then he says, and I don't want you to even try to remember anything that I say. <laughs> he, he, doesn't, he doesn't really mean it. But he's, the point is that he's really relaxing people. They're super comfortable. And of course, that, it's also that, that gets the student's attention when you say that. Um, but he gets them very relaxed. He gets them in a place where they're comfortable with being confused, where it's not dangerous. Again, back to feeling safe. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like that, um, you know, I was reading that, and I, and I thought, wow, this is phenomenal for any teacher, you know, for math, you know, for science, for a lot of things that people just find intimidating. Yeah. Because um, I was blown away by the results. These people learn language very, very quickly. There's a question of how quickly you keep it up. You know, you have to keep practicing it. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point, yeah, there's a physicist, uh, Eric Mazur at Harvard, and on his syllabus, he says, you're going to be very confused, but don't feel bad about it. It's fine. Uh, this is going to be part of learning. And he really wants people to be comfortable with mm -hmm. being confused and being uncertain. Yeah, and you, you mentioned at some point the value of having people fail tests sometimes. Yeah. And there's a whole psychology literature on desirable difficulties, right. yeah. um, which, which is really interesting that, that you not only need to tolerate ambiguity in the world, but also about yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, there's an analogy that I use in the book that um, I, I found this golf teacher in South Carolina who's a great golf teacher, and he, he distinguishes between two kinds of learning, uh, really skill acquisition and what he calls transfer practice. And skill acquisition is you're just learning your golf stroke, and there you want everything to be calm, you just kind of relaxed, practice, repetition. In order to, then once you've learned those skills, in order to apply them on different golf courses, then you introduce uncertainty. Then you challenge people. So the corollary is um, you know, a teacher that I, that I uh, spent time observing his class, Jim Lang, and he tries to throw students off. He gives them unexpected assignments. He gives them assignments that they're going to fail at. He has them write things very quickly. So um, you know, both, are, both are right. It just depends on what you're practicing for. So a lot, of the, a lot of the case studies that you use in the book have to do with big businesses, right? And ones that end up succeeding, ones that end up failing. Um, one of the things that I found quite interesting was the case study of Fairchild uh, Magazine and um, Women's Wear Daily and Hemlines. So first, maybe you can um, walk people through that. And then um, I actually 
have a question about the outcome, but, but maybe... Of, of women's hemlines. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this was a story... Very personally relevant. Uh, ...about women's wear daily, and what year was it? In the 70s? Yeah, yeah. So it's in the 70s, years. and women's wear daily is this uh, large fashion, it still is, uh, and the head of it said, next year um, is going to be the year of the midi. The mini skirt is out. Uh, 1970, I think, right? Miniskirt is out, and we're going to have skirts that are four inches below the knee. And they proclaimed this. And, um, you know, at that time, that was kind of how things went. Um, and so everyone fell in line. All the stores bought all the MIDI inventory. They advertised for MIDIs. And uh, American women revolted <laughs> and did not comply with this edict. Um, they came too late. It was out of season. Um, they didn't want to buy new clothes. Uh, and the story is really about the folly of prediction. And the, the second half of that story, you know, this is a volatile industry, is about Zara, which is owned by Inditex, and how they became the biggest fashion retailer in the world, really by saying, we can't predict. So what they did was they shrunk, um, they owned the entire production line. They shrunk the time as, as short as possible from the time you make a garment to the time you get it in the stores. And they reserved a much larger piece of their uh, in-season production line for making new clothes. So they go around and they see what, what things are selling and they make those very quickly and they get them out and they produce in small batches, get instant feedback. So yeah, so tell me what your question is. So my question is, um, going back to um, Women's Wear Daily, on the one hand, yes, it is a story about prediction. On the other hand, it is a story about trying to be forward-thinking and trying to be creative and trying to actually be comfortable making a decision in the face of future ambiguity. And obviously, in this particular case, that was not only not rewarded, it ended up being you know, catastrophic. And had it been a smaller magazine, yeah. it might have been the end. Um, and so how do, you, you know, how do you weigh those two things against each other, kind of the need to to make predictions if you're not Zara, not just in the fashion industry, and to try to kind of embrace ambiguity, and yet sometimes the really dire consequences that can come from doing that. So I think rather than thinking of ambiguity as you know, something you face at a single decision point, you think of it as something that you face you know, as part of a process. Mm -hmm. So really what Zara does is remain flexible. You know, they're able to change their minds very quickly. So they make decisions, but the, the bad decisions don't hurt them. So I think, for me, I think about it really as the ability to remain flexible. Uh, of course, you have to act. Of course, you're going to have to make a decision. But can you adapt to new information or not? So, so what happens, though, if you know, that's all very well and good in theory, but in practice, sometimes you, know, you have deadlines. You, your flexibility can only go to a certain point. In some industries, you can't have the sort of flexible supply chain that you have in Zara because some of these things are planned you know, five years out. Um, so, so how do we, you know, in practice, how do yeah. you do that? How do we cure bad decisions? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, so I, I think really that all I can say is that there are two major pitfalls uh -huh. of a high need for closure in decision making. One is, you know, jumping to conclusions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the urgency effect. So that's when we don't really have a prior opinion about something. And we kind of take early information into account and put too much emphasis on early information. So they do these experiments in hiring where uh, they have a fake interview with someone. And the first part of the interview, they do very well. The second part, they do badly. 
and they reverse that uh, so that you, know, you do badly at the beginning. And, and people with a high need for closure put far too much emphasis on the first part of the interview and they ignore the later information. <laughs> so if you're just normal, uh, you, you rate those people a five because you're adjusting for the later information. If you have a high need for closure, you're rating that on average a seven if they do well or a three if they do poorly. Um, so, that's ur Ooh. so that's urgency. And permanence really comes into play when uh, you become inflexible. Mm -hmm. you're, you already have a strong opinion. There's other information coming that maybe conflicts. And are you going to be dogmatic? <laughs> now, the way that they lower people's need for closure in an experimental setting is they say, um, and I know you've also written about this, uh, they say you're going to be accountable for your decision. So uh, make your decision, let's say, uh, uh, of a job candidate. Later on, you're going to have to defend that decision in mm -hmm. front of a group. Uh, this decision is going to have serious consequences for this person later on. Later, your decision is going to be compared with an expert decision. So you know, one, one suggestion is to formalize those kinds of reminders. You, know, you write down what are the, no, not just the pros and cons, but what are the consequences of those decisions. Uh, and that's how they lower need for closure and make people more deliberate. And when they do that, the rating comes back to a five. They mm -hmm. do take into account later information. That's really interesting um, because we also have, obviously, the studies that, that do look at interviews and, and look at the fact that the first 20 seconds right. in interview settings really determine the outcome of the interview. You have Alexander Todorov's work at Princeton that shows that millisecond judgments predict the outcomes of elections. Right, right. Um, so it seems like there's something you know, we might have a higher low need for closure, but it seems like we also have something that's more ingrained in us yeah. that does love to jump to these sort of snap judgments. Yeah, yeah I think that, um, you know, the way Kroglansky says this is that we all have a capacity for these quick snap judgments, and we have to. I, you know, an economist asked me last night, you know, is this rational? <laughs> and um, I look at the mistakes that we make really as the downside or the dangers of a trade-off. Uh -huh. you know, the psychologist Jordan Peterson has this wonderful line where he says, managing the complexity of the world looms above all other psychological concerns. So we have to be reducing, we have to be quickly categorizing. It's just built into who we are. Um, and these are some of the mistakes that we make when we do it. We all be reading more Kafka? Inspired by I one love of the studies. Kafka. Yes, please read more Kafka. Um, would you like to talk about the Kafka study? Sure. Um, so this is a, a social psychologist that I profile at Tilburg University. His name is Travis Prue. And he's making people uncertain very creatively. One way is by having them read a Kafka story. This is, you may know this story, uh, The Country Doctor. So it's a short piece. It's very dreamlike, nightmarish. There's a doctor. He wakes up. There's heavy snow. He has to reach a boy. The boy's 10 miles away. He can't find his horses. Um, he sends his servant girl out to get the horses. A man comes and bites her on the cheek. He goes and finds the boy. The boy's just fine. No, wait, the boy's going to die. The boy has a wound. Then the villagers take the doctor's clothes off and ask impossible things of him. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so um, he had people read this story, and then afterwards they affirmed their nationalism more strongly, <laughs> among other effects. But his idea is that there are spillover effects to sense-making, so that if the uncertainty is still in the unconscious mind, 
it makes us more polarized in our views. It makes us affirm our existing views, whatever those views are, more fervently. There was also a positive effect, right, in terms of the, pattern, the recognition. pattern recognition. Yeah. So in another experiment, he showed people what looked like random letter strings, and they, they saw more patterns. So in his reckoning, there's a sequential response to uncertainty, and the first is uh, the behavioral inhibition system. And that's really when we sense an error and we kind of get more alert. Mm -hmm. uh, we're a little more anxious, we're more attentive. And then the second system is called the behavioral approach system. And in that, that system, we're moving towards a resolution, a commitment to an idea or an action. And that would be the, the second part where you're affirming nationalism. So he, get, he can get both effects depending on when he asks the, the subject how long after the, uh, the Kafka story. So when exactly do we want to be reading Kafka? <laughs> Always. <laughs> so, so your book is, um, you know, it's mostly about you know, the, the need to embrace ambiguity, right? The, the fact that we don't really do it nearly enough. Are there any situations where we actually shouldn't, where it's adaptive to not embrace ambiguity? I think there are a lot of, yeah. Close-minded? I think there are a lot of situations where ambiguity just makes us anxious, where we can't do anything about it. You know, uh, am I gonna get this job? I'm gonna find out next week. I'm gonna, should I worry about it the whole week? I don't know. So there's a lot of situations where you just wanna remind yourself that you can't know and not to worry about it. So does it come down to control? Is that kind I of think a lot of it is about control. I mean, a lot of it is, do you let your mind wander and, and try to solve things that you can't solve and answer things that you can't answer? Um, there's, a great, there's a great anecdote, um, which isn't in the book, which is uh, maybe you saw this uh, short documentary by Errol Morris on the New York Times a few years ago. It's called The Umbrella Man. So this is great. Um, so he interviews this private eye who's written a book about the Zapruder film. It's mm -hmm. called Six Seconds in Dallas. And in this book, he notes that there's a man in the Zapruder film who, right next to where JFK was shot, is holding an open umbrella. It was sunny that day. There's no reason for this guy to be holding an open umbrella. And conspiracy theorists jump on this. And they say, there's a dark gun in the umbrella. You know, the umbrella is signifying the umbrella of air support <laughs> that he promised the Cuban rebels. Okay. So he doesn't, the private eye, who was a philosopher and then became a private detective, which is just amazing by itself, um, doesn't comment on what the umbrella is. He just writes in his book and he says, uh, please come forward. Nine years later, the guy does come forward and he testifies before Congress. And he says, I was heckling JFK because this, I heard that Neville Chamberlain's umbrella was a sore spot for the Kennedy family because of Joe Kennedy's uh, relationship with Neville Chamberlain. You know, he was at the, at the court of King James. So they cut back to the private eye at the end. He says, I heard that, and I thought, that's just so bizarre, it has to be true. And I take it to be true. And what you can get from this is that if you have a detail that's really sinister, that you're really sure is incriminating, let it go because your imagination can't possibly match all of the possible benign explanations for something. So you have two things in that story, right? The first is this need to know, and, uh -huh. which verges into paranoia, and then you have the inability of the human imagination to match the complexity of the world. So is there any work that's been done, and maybe, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but I, I'm curious whether there's been any work about linking need for closure to people who believe in conspiracy theories? Yes, there has. So, so could you tell? And it's linked. Um, so Kruglansky has looked at 
Uh, I think this is very similar to extremism. Uh -huh. Kruglansky has looked at extremists in Palestine, Sri Lanka, Spain, all over. And he found that the common thread was that they all have a very high need for closure. Um, and it makes sense, you know, you're, you need answers, you're excluding evidence, you're jumping to conclusions, and then anything that is, you know, contradicts you, you're dogmatic about. So yeah, there's a strong link to paranoia and to extremism if you get a really high need for closure. Guys, the test is on page 87 of the book. <laughs> so you, can, you can rate yourself and then, and then see how that, how that works. Um, so one of, the, one of the links that you make conceptually in the book that I found really interesting was linking up um, the need for closure with cognitive dissonance. Um, so first, I'm sure that most people in the audience do know uh, what cognitive dissonance is, but maybe you can first just briefly talk about um, what it is and then talk about that conceptual connection that you make. In, in the second chapter, which chapter? Um, when you talk about um, Festinger's work into the yes. alien abductions. Yeah. So Festinger's famous idea is, really originally it was any mental conflict can cause cognitive dissonance. He said any conflict between two cognitions, ideas, beliefs, behaviors. Uh, and his idea was that this is mentally unpleasant and that we often resolve this, um, he focused on opinion change, we often resolve this by changing our opinions to, to um, conform to past actions. So in his famous studies, he would have people write counter-attitudinal uh, counter essays. Write an essay about you know, arguing in favor of a position that you disagree with. And then later on, he would ask them, you know, do, do you agree with that position? Have you changed? And when they had to take personal responsibility for writing those essays, they changed their minds. So what, what Prue is doing with, with Festinger's idea is saying, I think that's part of a, a larger taxonomy that we can describe. And actually there is a, a paper earlier this year in uh, J Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in which they used that intervention and they showed all of his effects. So I have you write a, an essay that you disagree with, increased belief in God, increased pattern perception, uh, and increased political polarization in terms of affirmative action. Um, so he's building on Festinger's idea and saying, you know, he had, this is one part of the picture and let's build around it. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's quite fascinating. And uh, you also quote a lot of people, um, philosophers, George Saunders, yeah. um, people who say that, you know, the, and you probably remember the quotes verbatim, which I don't, that one hallmark of genius is being able to kind of keep these conflicting ideas in your mind simultaneously and be okay with that. Yeah. So actually, to be okay with cognitive dissonance in yeah. a way, right? Yeah, that's what they're arguing. Yeah, the link to art is fascinating. Um, I think a lot of art is fueled by, by contradictions. Mm -hmm. uh, John Gardner, who is a literary critic and writer, uh, he actually said that that's what suspense was. The suspense is the writer working out their mental conflict in the guise of plot and character. Mm -hmm. And then the end of the book is whatever resolution they can come to. So I think it's their fuel, but I also think a lot of it is what you're saying, you know, because great works of art don't tie everything up into a neat little bow. It is kind of just the way of being comfortable with complexity. Right, you know? right and you end your book with Chekhov. Right. Um, and so we should be reading Kafka and Chekhov. Well, Chekhov, you know, didn't end his stories neatly, yeah. and that was his great rebellion um, that he said, 
I think we're missing some of the most interesting moments mm -hmm. by having to have this neat little narrative. And so he ends his stories in seemingly strange places. Yeah. Well, I thought um, you make a very interesting point, which is that, first of all, that doesn't often happen. But secondly, it's much more true to life because most situations in life are not neatly resolved. And to me, it's it was quite interesting to think about because normally we, we learn a lot from experience, right? So for what happens to us, that kind of forms a mental framework for what's going to happen. And so it's fascinating that we somehow managed to dismiss the fact that there were no neat endings and still think that there will be in yeah, the future. Yes, this, this thing, uh, this end of history paper. Uh -huh. Yeah. So this was a finding from 2013 where they asked people how much have you changed over the last 10 years and how much will you change over the next 10? And pretty uniformly, people said, I've changed a lot, but I'm not going to change anymore. Uh, I'm done. Uh, and I think a lot of this is about control. Mm -hmm. This idea that, well, I know who I am now. It was a path that I, that I journeyed on to become myself. And um, if I'm going to change this much in 10 years, that's scary that I'm not quite as in control as I thought. Uh, do you think people do change? I think they change a lot. Yeah, people change less as they get older, but, but yes. So, so we started on um, kind of a political note, and I'd love to, you make this fascinating point about labels, right, and how um, when, as soon as we apply labels to something, we stop being able to to see it, really. Yeah, um, right. And you talk about artists. Um, was it Matisse, the example yes. that you use? Yeah. Who said that he looks at an apple or a tomato differently if he's going to eat it than if he's going to draw it. That's right. Because every time you draw it, you want to look at it as if for the first time. Yeah. So the second we label it tomato, yeah. it ceases to kind of have that imaginative impact. And I actually, when I was reading about that, I thought, well, should we you know, get rid of party politics? You know, should we get rid of a two-party system? Should we get rid of labels that, uh, that force the, the same sort of simplification? Well, I, I, that, your, your comment gave me a much more whimsical thought, which was, uh, <laughs> which was I have a, a five-year-old brother, and uh, I was hanging out with him, and he saw a frog or something, and he was just staring at it. And, you know, my impulse was like, that's a frog. <laughs> but of course, it is amazing. He's yeah. right to stare at it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is true that often labeling something is the end of looking at it and thinking about it and exploring it. Yeah, and you actually, you have a number of problems that people, um, that people uh, look at when, it, when studying functional fixedness, right? Yes. So labels kind of prevent you from seeing. Yes. And I, so I, I, I did them and um, I solved two. I couldn't okay. solve one. The light bulb was a, was a hard one. No, I could do the light bulb. Okay. Yeah, I did, the, I did the light bulb. <laughs> so here's the one that I missed. Um, I won't read the whole, I won't read it verbatim, but basically the idea is that a truck driver is distracted and he gets stuck in an underpass so that the truck can neither go forwards nor backwards. And without damaging the truck or the underpass, how's he going to get out of that underpass? And I, kind of, I, I thought, well, maybe you can remove the roof of the truck. <laughs> I was really focused on, on this yeah. roof aspect and obviously the solution is, has to do with removing labels and realizing that you have not just a truck, but tires, and tires have air, and air can be let out of tires. Yeah. And once that happens, trucks become a little bit 
shorter. And for the life of me, I could, it seems so simple, but I couldn't figure that out. So this is a, a psychologist named Tony McAfee who has started a company on invention. And his idea is that in the, in our, in the way we label things, in the way we, we phrase our goals, in our automatic assumptions, we're narrowing our possible solutions to a problem. So there's a great example um, recently, which is not in there because it's too recent. But um, let's say you're trying to build a safer football helmet. You want to reduce concussions. A lot of them come from helmet-to-helmet -helmet contact. So your goal here is to um, you know, soften impacts. Mm -hmm. So you're searching through patent applications and you're looking for a better cushion. His idea is that even in just that phrase, soften impacts, you're limiting it in a way that you wouldn't imagine. So let's say instead, so he'll use a thesaurus. What are the other ways? So let's say we use the word repel. Well, that might make, make you think of magnetism. Mm -hmm. So there was someone who actually tested this and they magnet, magnetized two football helmets with the same pole. And it does considerably slow down helmet to helmet contact. And it's being tested. I don't know if it's practical at all, but it's neat. <laughs> yeah, and you, you wrote about magnetization with Teflon. I right. mean, the, yeah, the fact that's another one. Um, yeah. It's really interesting that the, the words we choose really affect how we even begin to conceptualize a problem. Yeah. Um, is there any way that we can actually apply this to, to ourselves? Is there a way to kind of become more adept at, more open to that kind of thinking without, you know, to have it be almost second nature? I don't know. Uh, he does have a, a system that, you know, and he has, he has a bunch of different techniques that apply depending on what the automatic assumption is. Mm -hmm. But there is a 2012 paper in which he talks about how to beat functional fixedness. And, it, and this gets back to the truck problem. And he says, describe each part of the truck as if it does not have a function. So instead of a truck, you say it's a metal box with shifting contents inside. The tires are not tubes. They are, uh, the tires are not tires. That implies a function. They're tubes filled with air. Okay, they're filled with air. I can reduce the air. Or I can shift the contents inside the truck towards the front. Maybe that will lower it. Um, so he has some techniques. Well, what about the, when you're just, when we're not talking about an object, but when we're talking about, you know, a challenge or a problem yeah. or, you know, even, you know, reducing football helmet injury, maybe it's a question of getting rid of helmets and actually replacing them with a totally different device we haven't even thought of. Yeah. Um, is there any way that we can kind of get comfortable with that sort of thinking, or do you think that's wishful thinking on my part? Well, uh, there, there are um, studies that show that a high need for closure is detrimental to creativity. Uh, there are two uh, experiments that I know of aside from just being more deliberate, that show ways to lower people's need for closure. One is reading fiction. I don't know how practical these are. One is reading fiction. And I think, again, because it's non-threatening, it invites you into the minds of other people um, and it has you imagining different worlds. The other is multicultural experiences. It has been shown to lower our need for closure and reduce stereotyping. Uh, fiction also increases empathy. So there's a great experiment that said just, um, you know, write about a time where you met someone who lived abroad or ate a different food, different kind of food, or listened to a different kind of music, and that lowered people's need for closure. So in theory, that would make you more creative. But. Um, what, would you, what would you say is the kind of single most important thing that you learned and that changed about you as a result of doing this book? Uh, I think I got a little better at uh, being wrong. Uh, my editor helped me at that. 
<laughs> Is your editor in the audience? <laughs> she's in the audience. She's, she's a wonderful editor. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, I struggle like everybody else, but I learned a little, yeah. And, and what do you think people can, can take away other than the fact that we're wrong and that's okay? Uh, I think, uh, you know, read fiction, read Kafka, read Chekhov, <laughs> try some different food, <laughs> travel, study abroad. By the way, the next time I don't hand in my book on time and I'm way past deadline, I'm going to say I was taught to uh, try to avoid closure. There's <laughs> <laughs> no need to act. No, no, no need, no need at all. Just keep, keep learning, right? <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Again, Jamie, thank you so much for this wonderful book. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.